One of the things I always loved about the street is that there's an element of chaos that adds a vibrancy and immediacy, a charm to the work. And having a little bit of that in work that's going into a gallery that's controlled, that doesn't have the benefit of being out in the wild, was something that I was excited about. I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Few living artists have created an artwork as instantly recognizable as Shepard Fairey's Hope Poster, which has become the stuff of legend as the face of Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. The image, which the New Yorker dubbed the most efficacious American political illustration since Uncle Sam Wants You, remains embedded in the public consciousness, even if you don't know the street artist's name. But Ferry has been creating powerful visuals for more than 30 years, dating back to 1989, when he began pasting stickers of Andre the Giant's face over the word obey on the streets of Providence during his studies at the Rhode Island School of Design. In the decades since, Ferry has become equally at home in the art museum as on the streets, bridging the divide between the fine art world and the skateboarding-slash-graffiti scene with work that reflects his commitment to activism. That Obama poster, it's worth noting, was a grassroots effort. It was not an official campaign commission. Ahead of Ferry's new solo show at Dallas Contemporary, Artnet News senior writer Sarah Casconi sat down with the artist to talk about his long career from the DIY skate and punk scene to art world acceptance. Hi, Shepard. Welcome to the Art Angle. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I kind of wanted to start at the beginning. You studied art at RISD, and you've spoken a little bit in the past about how the talent there was really intimidating and that street art was actually a way for you to make work without having to have anyone validate that it was good enough. It was just a way to do your own projects on your own terms. Can you talk a little bit about your first experience with street art and what that was like? Well, I was into skateboarding and punk rock, and there was a sort of street-level DIY promotional thing that went with that. So I was into making homemade stickers and homemade t-shirts, but I wouldn't really characterize that as street art. Later on, when I was working at a skate shop the summer after my freshman year at the Rhode Island School of Design, I made this Andre the Giant has a posse sticker kind of as an inside joke with a friend when I was trying to teach him how to make stencils. But that quickly turned into an obsession because I made a few stickers, gave them to people, and then other people started coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, I've seen some of those stickers around. Where can I get some? It was like an underground secret handshake. And then I thought about the control of public space, the imagery you see in public space. And I had stumbled onto something that made me want to do street art because I liked the reactions it was creating. I liked that it was making people question the nature of imagery in public space. So I guess my first experience was accidentally empowering. <laughs> so you had this early work as a street artist. People were catching wind of it. People were excited about it in the local community and it was spreading, but it wasn't really exactly paying the bills. So I know you did a lot of work as more commercial graphic design, including like the Ella Funk album cover art for the Black Eyed Peas. And those were things that maybe you weren't very excited about doing, but did pay the bills. 
So I wonder what was it like trying to make a living as an artist coming out of school in the early 90s? And when did you kind of start to feel secure in your profession financially? Yeah, financial security was very gradual. And I'd say that by most people's standards, I was completely failing for the first 10 years of my career. But my initial idea was that I would open a screen printing studio and have the opportunity to do contract printing work for bands and restaurants and whoever else. And I ended up doing a lot of that. And most of it was not work that I found fulfilling, except for occasionally I'd get to do Sonic Youth stickers for a tour or something like that. Then I also was able to have that equipment there to use for my own art, my own screen prints, my own t-shirts that I made. I had decided that I wanted to do a clothing line because that was the most accessible art that most of my friends were into coming out of skateboarding and punk rock and hip hop. The t-shirt was the utilitarian canvas, but that business failed. I was not skilled enough in business. So then I pivoted to doing graphic design and had to do graphic design for plenty of companies that I didn't have an emotional connection to, but I didn't have an ethical conflict with. I turned down a lot of work from people like Camel Cigarettes and Hummer Cars, just because I didn't want to support those brands. But I did stuff for Mountain Dew, for the Black Eyed Peas, for plenty of different things. And that was to survive. I always worked a two-shift day, worked on client work during the day and my own stuff at night. And then gradually, my own work started to get a little bit more traction. But that took about 10 years. But the one thing that I have to say about doing the graphic design work was that there was a lot of experimentation I could do creatively based on what I was doing for other people, that then the successful experiments I could bring back to my own work. So there is a benefit from just being engaged in creative calisthenics all the time. You're honing your skills just through practice. And you know now I'm, I'm happy that I get to focus all that energy on my own work. It was a slow process where I was willing to work nights and weekends on my own stuff in order to keep my work flowing out into the world because we live in a culture where there's a lot of noise, people have short attention spans, remaining in people's lives, staying present is very important. So that was probably the biggest challenge for me was not the creative drain of having to work on client projects, but then the burden of having to make sure that I was also building the audience resonance for my own work too. And then at the same time that you were doing this work, you also opened your own gallery, which kind of came out of your roots with the skateboarding and punk scenes, right? That you wanted to kind of provide a platform for artists that were in that arena. Can you talk a little bit about that? I always thought that skateboarding and punk rock and hip hop and graffiti were all realms where there was amazing creativity, but it wasn't taken that seriously by the art world. So initially, Subliminal was a skateboard brand that instead of there being pro skateboarders for each board model, it was artists. And we worked with Thomas Campbell, Mike Mills, Phil Frost, Blaze Bluen. It was all people that also skateboarded. So there's a direct connection to skateboarding, but all those people were into indie music and things like that. But then when that skateboard brand failed, I revived it as our gallery in Los Angeles. And we still focus a lot on work that's emerging from 
those street culture places like skateboarding and street art and graffiti, but it's not at all rigidly bound to that. It was sort of like just creative insurgency wherever it's coming from. Yeah, you've shown a lot of artists that are famous in the mainstream art world there as well. Yeah, and a lot of those people are people who had more unconventional roots and now are established. And, you know, sometimes when people ask me, because I'm embraced by the art world to a degree now, does that mean I've lost connection to the spirit of how I started? And say, no, you know, that's just a part of the creative arc that I've always employed the inside outside strategy. If I'm not welcome in the establishment or the mainstream, cool, I'll work outside of it. But if I can infiltrate it, I'm absolutely going to do that. It would be I think foolish not to try to change the machine from within. And I look at a lot of the artists that we work with as having that spirit. I'm not so interested in people who started purely pandering to the art world and have stayed with that mindset. That's just not exciting to me. Every now and then there's some great art from people who that's what they want to do. They want to suck up to the art world. But there are other people that'll so show tell it. Tell us how you really feel about the art world. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, you had this kind of DIY operation. What was it like your first taste of the art world kind of welcoming you in? And when did you start to see that shift? Well, I guess it would be in the mid nineties when I was putting a lot of posters up in New York, the, alleged gallery, which was Aaron Rose's gallery on the Lower East Side, was showing some people like Barry McGee and Phil Frost and Thomas Campbell and Margaret Kilgallen and starting to get some attention. And I, I was part of that crew. So the Holly Solomon Gallery brought Aaron and Carla McCormick in to do a show. And, you know, Holly Solomon had shown Warhol. She was pretty established. And then the New Museum did a show and they wanted to get some of my prints for that show. The funny thing is they wanted me to donate them, but my prints were 20 bucks each at that time. And I was dead broke. So I said, look, they're 20 bucks. You're going to have to buy them. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the, you know, those were more occasional things. It wasn't really until probably 2005 or so, 2003, 2005, that I started to get shows in more legit galleries. I was doing a lot of poster shows in warehouse spaces and alternative galleries, places where they're like, hey, we're going to do a rave, but we want to hang your stuff on the wall. And I was fine with all those things, but I also did want to make more sophisticated mixed media pieces, paintings, etc. So when I started to be able to work with galleries that could position that work as legitimate art and sell it, that was beneficial. I never wanted to pander to the art world. I went to art school. I studied illustration. I did a lot of printmaking, a lot of graphic design, a lot of photography. But I longed for the time when I could spend as much time as I wanted on a piece and then potentially sell it, knowing that it was the uncompromised ultimate expression of what I was capable of. And that, you know, still might have been pretty modest in its end result, but, uh, <laughs> but I was trying. Well, and now you've got this big show with the Dallas Contemporary. Congratulations. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what's going to be in the exhibition and what visitors can expect. Yeah, this is my second project with Dallas Contemporary, but my first show in the museum. I did a series of murals facilitated by them in 2012. That was 10 years ago now. This show called Backward Forward is the largest 
body of new work I think maybe I've ever done. I did a really big show in 2017 called Damage that it was a similar scale show, but this is definitely the largest new body of work in a museum. And there's uh, over 140 pieces in the show. There will be a couple of murals inside the space. There's an outdoor mural that I'm doing. And the show is focused on all the themes that I'm usually doing that I've become known for environmental destruction, disinformation, racism, sexism, xenophobia, the need for gender equality, gun violence. I'd say that probably the thing that people haven't seen with this show is that I made a grouping of modular pieces that are four panels. And I started with using 12 by 12 inch art panels and deciding on how to configure them where they would have some continuous elements and some things that were sort of cut up unexpected collisions or juxtapositions. You could say a little bit like William S. Burroughs cut-ups. And, you know, it's hard for me to say it and have you visualize it, I'm sure. But I've always worked with a lot of modular elements and recurrent motifs and patterns and things. But this is probably, I think, the coolest iteration of that way of working that I've come up with so far. And I'm happy to still be experimenting and yet finding within the experiment some really exciting zones. My work's always been about an evolution and a progression, but with a recognizable thread to the older work. And I think anyone that sees this show would recognize my style, but there's some things going on that people might not expect. And funny enough, because this is all analog work, is that it was in part inspired by a generative NFT project that I did. It was called Degenerate Regenerate. I took a bunch of my backgrounds, collages, patterns, geometric elements, and then some of my best known iconic motifs, and then textures, and created an algorithm where things would be layered. And even though it's using my art DNA and using things I'm extremely comfortable and familiar with and work with, the way it generated some unexpected relationships with things made me rethink how I could construct some of my work. And one of the things I always loved about the street is that there's an element of chaos that adds a vibrancy and immediacy, a charm to the work. And having a little bit of that in work that's going into a gallery that's controlled that doesn't have the benefit of being out in the wild was something that I was excited about. And I think that a lot of my work is, it's very direct in the ideas, even if there's some layers to the message and to the humor. Um, it's not all completely didactic, but a lot of it is fairly direct. But I think people enjoy finding connections to things and you know, if you look at all the numerology conspiracy theorists, we know that there's a lot of people that like finding connections even when they're not there. But the beauty of latitude for interpretation is something, and people making connections between things is, I think, that's something that's really rich in this body of work. And you mentioned that people will recognize your style in the show. People will be able to identify the work as yours. Obviously, you do have quite a distinctive style. You have a recognizable color palette and a way with line. Can you tell us how did you kind of develop that and what are some of the influences? 
Well, I'm really omnivorous. I like to look at a lot of things and I'm inspired by a lot of things. It ranges from 80s album covers and punk albums, skateboard graphics to some 80s fashion stuff. But then in the art world, I'd say the pop artists like Warhol, Lichtenstein, Robert Rauschenberg, big one, then Barbara Kruger's work, her political work, the Russian constructivists, Rachinko, the Sternberg brothers, Popova, Ilizitsky, all really great stuff. The Russian constructivists, the way that they would reduce things down to their most iconic, most powerful essence with really strong typography, great color theory, and strong elements like stars, exclamation points. You can see that even though my work has moved away from a direct reference to that, that a lot of those principles remain in my work. You know, there are other things like the Works Progress Administration posters for the national parks that are really, really powerful works with excellent color theory, very seductive. And movements like Art Nouveau and Art Deco, where there was a strong sense of ornamentation and patterning. Sorry, I could just go on and on, but all of this stuff ends up being filtered through my sensibility. And when uh, it's spit out the other side, I think it looks like my work. I really can't stand artists who try to act like they invented stuff. Nobody invented anything. I didn't invent anything. I perfected my own way of, you know, of rendering the things that I'm inspired by in a way that's recognizably mine, but it all is built from somewhere. And the idea of originality is massively overrated. Anything truly original, humans couldn't process because if it's original and it's never been seen before, you don't know what to make of it because it's not anchored to any framework. But, you know, I'm constantly finding new things from all over the place that I think are, are inspiring. There's no artist that I'm copying per se, but, you know, when I look at what Vils is doing or Swoon or Banksy, any number of people who I find inspiring, Space Invader, Monica Canelau. I'm like, wow, there's inspiration in there. But if I take what I'm inspired by from their work, it's going to look not like their work when I channel it. Speaking of originality, I wanted to ask you about your approach to subject matter and imagery that you are incorporating into your work, because right now there's a big case coming before the Supreme Court about an Andy Warhol work that's based on a photograph of Prince and whether or not that work is fair use. And you, of course, have come up against the issue of fair use in your own career, specifically with your famous Obama poster, and you actually had a legal settlement with the photographer who had taken that. So I wonder, over the course of your career, you know, obviously as a young art student, it's just kind of pick from here, pick from there. And now, how has your approach changed and having to license things and kind of more dot your I's and cross your T's to make sure that you're on the right side of fair use? I'm a big believer in the legitimacy of remix. I mean, Public Enemy is my all-time favorite hip-hop group, but after the lawsuit with the Associated Press over the Obama poster, I have been 
more careful. And even prior to that, I often collaborated with photographers. My process is mixed. I'm sometimes shooting my own photographs. I'm sometimes using multiple historical references as the basis for an illustration, but in the end, it doesn't look like any one reference. Other times I'm licensing things from photo stock sites, and that's a way to protect myself. All of these different things are part of me illustrating in a style that looks like mine. I believe that Warhol's work is for the most part fair use, but it's actually less transformative because he's just half-toning a photograph. Like I completely re-illustrate everything that I do. So it was very frustrating for me to be in that lawsuit with the Associated Press when I made an original illustration based on a photograph and the different tenets of fair use, if it's transformative visually, conceptually, if it's not primarily based on commerce, but based on political speech. I felt like that image satisfied all those things, but that's the problem when you're dealing with powerful corporations and they can hire lawyers. It's They want to actually redefine what's fair use to benefit them. So I don't want to be in the crosshairs like that. So I'm always trying to protect myself, but at the same time, I'm always trying to advocate for a younger artist with fewer resources to have more latitude. And are you looking to this Supreme Court verdict? Are you worried about it in any way? Because I think it really could change the field of fair use. And I know that there are people on both sides that feel super passionately like that this is a real opportunity to protect original artist creations or that this is going to chill creative expression. I've heard extremely passionate voices on both sides, and I'm so curious to see how it's going to go. I'm not particularly worried about it for myself because the way I work now, I'm very insulated from something happening like what's happening to the Warhol estate. I think that the better way to go for Warhol at that time would have been to just set up a mutually beneficial deal with Lynn Goldsmith. I do that with photographers all the time. I don't want anyone to feel like I've taken advantage of them. Just like when I see bootlegs of my stuff that are exact replicas of something I've made, I'm bummed. But when I see something that's somebody's taken what I do and made something transformative that adds to the cultural conversation, I'm cool with that. But where that line is, is quite debatable. So I would like to see the case probably go to Warhol's favor, but at the same time, it's tricky. It's in a gray area. And I think if people were just better to each other and communicated better and were like, this is fair, these things could be avoided. But one of the things I think that's important though, and it's a point I've made before, is that sometimes in making political art, using something that's pre-existing as a point of reference is essential. And if it's a critique, the people who created the thing that's being referenced may not like that idea yet, you know, should they be able to stop that bit of creative political expression from happening because it's an important part of the social conversation, not just something that's about selling precious things in the art world. But on the other side of the Obama poster, I wanted to ask you how you kind of feel about the political situation now versus back then creating that, not as a commission for the campaign, but out of a genuine sense of optimism that Obama had the potential to engender a positive progressive change for the nation. 
Now, looking ahead to a potential Trump campaign in 2024, how do you feel about the state of the world and the ability of art to kind of promote social change, art as a tool for activism? Of course, I feel really strongly about it. I feel like it's always got the potential to make a difference. You know, I'd like to see more artists commenting on what's going on. I mean, I'm very concerned about the undermining of truth and democracy. Um, when you look at the corrosive effect that Trump had on our politics, it's, it's profound and terrifying. The voter suppression tactics, the idea of having election deniers running for state offices and frequently for things like attorney general, where they would be getting to decide whether elections were legitimate and they likely would say they weren't legitimate if they didn't like the result. This is, you know, this is getting into really dangerous territory when it comes to the survival of democracy. So I'm making work about a lot of things that I care about, but that <laughs> generally need a functioning democracy with people who care about those issues to be able to put people in office who will do something about those issues as just a like ground floor concept. So it's rough right now. And the fact that a lot of people don't seem to really understand how serious it is or care is really horrifying. I know that politics are frequently unsexy and kept complicated for a lot of people so that they won't want to participate. Of course, I'm a progressive. I'm a Democrat, even though I don't always agree with everything the Democrats do. You know, I see how the influence of big business, corporations, special interests mean that on both sides, their democracy is corrupted, but especially the Republicans don't want campaign finance reform and they don't want accountability to anyone other than the richest people and the richest corporations. And the fact that more of the public doesn't see that and find it to be a major problem is really frightening to me. Well, something you just said kind of echoed something you said the first time that we ever met. I interviewed you back in 2017, and you said artists need to find some courage to make work about these issues. And in the New York Times, I read an article that was about how almost no museums have work that deals with the issue of abortion. How do you make work that feels sincere, that can resonate with people, but doesn't feel like you're campaigning or politicking? It's subjective how people see it. I have to say that a piece like Barbara Kruger's Your Body is a Battleground is pretty direct about reproductive rights and yet is a beautiful and powerful image with language that really makes you think. And I'd like to see more of that. I don't think that it has to be binary, that you know, you're know you either doing something that's got beauty and poetry or you're doing something that says how you really feel. I think you can combine the two. And you know, maybe it's not always easy, but what I'm trying to do with a lot of my newer work is combine things that I think have a traditional beauty and symbolism, flowers, waves, clouds, doves, decorative patterns, but mixed with things that are you know, very critical of the stranglehold the fossil fuel industry has or 
I'll make a mandala out of gun parts that's very beautiful and zen and about harmony at a distance. And you get up close to it and realize that it's made out of gun parts. It's jarring. I like the idea of things having that dichotomy and things being revealed upon closer inspection. I think that that allows the viewer to process it on their own terms. You know, what I might make for a rally that an activist is going to hold up as a sign might be different than what I would do as a fine art piece in a museum. But sometimes there's some overlap and everybody's got to do what feels right to them. But what I've realized is I've matured, I guess. Uh, when people feel attacked, they don't generally change their mind on anything. So leaving some space for self-reflection in art and not just making it about tribalism, you know, and attacking people you disagree with, I think is more helpful. And I think among all living artists, you're kind of in a unique position that you were going viral before there was even really a term for that. And you've done it on multiple occasions with the Andre the Giant, which became Obey Giant, and with the Obama poster, with your We the People posters for the Women's March. You've had these images that really have like struck the zeitgeist and had these big moments. What do you think has allowed you to replicate that success over a more than three decade career? And do you ever feel pressure to kind of serve up the next big thing? I feel like there's always a bit of luck, but I like the phrase, luck favors the well-prepared. I'm always trying to look at what the needs of the moment are, but also as human beings, I think we repeat the same mistakes and have the same issues. So finding a way to combine being timely and timeless is something I'm striving for. I'm not always pulling it off. And also understanding that something has to be memorable or people just move on. They don't care. So in the spectrum of the immediacy of an international symbol, but it's incredibly bland and generic, and then something that's layered and sophisticated and deep, I'm probably three quarters of the way towards the international symbol, but having things have enough personality and yet enough universality is what I'm striving for. You know, you never know exactly where the wave's going to be cresting. And I think to try to second guess that and not just go with your instincts in general is, is really paralyzing and not fruitful anyway. It's anxiety inducing. And it was funny because nobody seemed to care much about what I was doing other than a few peers and hipsters prior to the Obama poster. Then all of a sudden, the people that consider themselves as cultural gatekeepers and people who want to consult you on your next move. They just were coming out of the woodwork saying like, oh yeah, yeah. And this is what you should do for the next thing. Or what are you going to do for the next thing? And I just realized, wow, it's such a machine based on trying to anticipate or manufacture the next cultural moment. And God, it's exhausting. In some ways, the pursuit of spectacle is not harmoniously aligned with the pursuit of good art. It just happens sometimes, but I find the people that are desperate for attention, trying to do the thing that will stand out and go viral, I find them really tedious. That's fair. It can be a bit much. Everybody's looking for their 15 minutes. Banksy made a great piece that one day 
everyone will be anonymous for 15 minutes. <laughs> that was prescient. He did that in 2006. One other thing that I wanted to touch on was in that prior interview I mentioned, you had also told me that you had been used to being told that your art was part of the evidence of a neighborhood in decline. And then all of a sudden you were being told, oh, actually you're a gentrifier. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how the role of street art has changed over the course of your career and what you see as kind of both the upside and the downside of how that's evolved. I was very frustrated that when you look at how bland a lot of public spaces, not just bland, often offensively bad in design, that people were so threatened by a little bit of disruptive artistic mischief. And I'm happy that a lot of people want to see street art and murals. I'm not happy that that's sometimes leveraged by people who want to exploit opportunity and actually harm vulnerable people by developing areas and raising the rent and using street art as a part of making a neighborhood more desirable. But I think that that's really ridiculous to look at the street artist as the villain in that equation who do bad things and use whatever tools they have at their disposal to leverage things to their advantage. And so I'm always trying to look at who's involved with projects I'm in. And I think that you can figure out whether people are decent if you take some time. And so that's what I try to do. But you know what I think is exciting is that there are a lot of beautiful murals going up in places where that wouldn't have been welcome 10 years ago. And everything that's happened for me in terms of legal opportunities, it's because I had the courage to do things when it wasn't legal also, but that resulted in a lot of arrests. And I'm very happy for a younger artist that doesn't have to get beaten up by the cops and arrested a bunch of times in order to find opportunities on the street. I still think that there's something great about breaking the rules, bending the rules, but not just for the sake of it, to demonstrate that some rules are only set up to benefit people in power or the super wealthy, and they deserve to be broken. And then other rules are more legitimate. That's all a case-by-case -case basis. But yeah, I just want to see more art in public spaces. I want art to be more democratic. You know that about me. I really want art to be accessible. When people talk about street art as, a, as some sort of movement like pop art, I don't really see it in the same way, other than I think there's a generous spirit to people who want to share their art in the public, but also are talented enough to make good paintings that will end up in a gallery. These are just two different facets of practice of somebody who has enough talent to work in multiple contexts. Doing work on the street isn't some sort of rigid, rule-laden orthodoxy, in my opinion. It's just you know, hey, I didn't have really any other opportunity to connect my work with people except on the street. Now I have other options. I still use the street. I use a bunch of other things, but all the options I use are fueled by my idea of art being accessible and democratic. And so street art is a great way to put art in front of people that don't go to galleries and museums. And 
I'm 100% for that, even though I would prefer if artists were a little bit more discriminating about who they partner with, because the people they partner with might not always be doing the humane, just things I'd like to see. Well, I think that might be a good note on which to end. I wish you all the best of luck installing the show and having a wonderful opening. Thank you so much, Shepard. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. yeah, you too, Sarah. Good to see you. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manonelli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.